scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. My wife Anya and I will be reading from the ESV, and for those of you who are able, please stand for the reading. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, Hmm, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build a larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into oven, how much more will he clothe you, or you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows what you need and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is a joy to open God's word with you again. Uh, before we do, though, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and we have a simple and yet terrifying request. We ask that you would be 
among your people, that you would be at work in our lives. We ask that you would convict us that we might be in greater alignment with you. We ask that you would break us, that we might be rebuilt into the image of your son. We ask that you would impress upon our hearts the great love and care you have for us as we dive into your word. Father, I ask also for me that you would fill me for this time of ministry, that you would take my frailty, these feeble words, and that you would empower them to bring you glory and honor. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been watching YouTube or Hulu and a commercial comes on and you think to yourself, there's no way that what they're claiming about their product can be true? Well, you just might be right. Turns out that there are several instances of companies guilty of airing blatant false advertisements. Uh, like in 2011, New Balance released a sneaker that they, they said would help you burn calories simply by wearing the sneaker. Uh, they had hidden technology boards in the shoes somewhere that would activate your glutes and quads and hamstrings, etc., and help you burn a bunch of calories just by sitting there. The only problem was there was no evidence to back that up. Uh, or in 2016, uh, Luminosity, which is a popular brain training app, advertised that their app could help prevent Alzheimer's disease. Not only that, if you use their app for 10 minutes a day, three days a week, uh, it would release, quote, your full potential in every aspect of life. Uh, it's instances like these that, uh, that remind me of what my dad told me growing up and continues to remind me that if it, it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And yet, and yet, we still buy the shoes. We still use the app, even though we suspect that their claims might be false. Because deep down, we're hoping that we're wrong. Deep down, we are hoping that these products do, in fact, lead to a better life. See, we are all searching for something that will make our lives worth living. And we think that if we could just look better, be smarter, have more, that this would unlock the abundant life that we are all seeking. And a good advertisement plays into that desire. It subtly suggests that their product will help us have the life we're looking for. Well, this morning, in our text, Jesus is going to advertise how we might have a life worth living. He claims that the abundant life that we're all seeking is out there, uh, but the path to it is a rather counterintuitive one. And so from our text, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the key to a life worth living, the obstacle to a life worth living, and the exchange for a life worth living. So the key to a life worth living. Our text begins with a, a dispute about money. A man, most likely the younger sibling, calls out to Jesus in verse 13, says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now that might seem a little weird to us to ask Jesus because he's a religious teacher. Uh, my guess is that if you are embroiled in an inheritance dispute, you're not going to schedule a 3 o'clock with Pastor Austin to sort it out. Uh, we keep those things separate. But in the first century, the judicial, social, and religious aspects of life were all entwined. And so what this young man is asking Jesus to do is 
actually rather typical for a rabbi. But you would never guess that by Jesus' response. He says to him in verse 14, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And, and if that reaction is not strange enough, he goes on this little mini rant in verse 15 to anyone who can hear him. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now that is a pretty strong response for a rather reasonable request. After all, the man is just asking that Jesus help him get what is rightfully his. So what sets Jesus off? What, what triggers him? And I think it has something to do with the underlying belief of the request. Odds are this inheritance is tearing the family apart. And it's because both brothers are convinced that if I just have these possessions, if I just have the inheritance, then my life will be better. It'll be worth living. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to warn his disciples that life does not consist of, it's not measured by their possessions. Why? Well, he gives us two reasons. One is because you can't take your possessions with you. In our text, Jesus tells the tale of a man who has a, a bumper crop, and now he has so much food, which in an agrarian culture meant that he had so much wealth that he literally couldn't store it all. And so he assesses the problem and decides that he's going to tear down his current barns and build bigger storehouses. And then he's going to kick back and relax and enjoy life. What he doesn't know is that he's going to die that night. And God calls this man a fool, and he asks him a rhetorical question in verse 20. The things that you've prepared, all of this stuff, whose will they be? And the answer is, not this guy, because he's dead. <laughs> he can't take any of his wealth with him. See, our possessions, our wealth, it does nothing for us after we die. It, it couldn't help the man in the parable, and it can't help you and me. It's the first reason Jesus gives us why life doesn't consist of our possessions. The second reason is that possessions really make up a very small part of our life. Look at what he says in verse 23. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that you don't need food, that you don't need clothing. He says that our life is so much more than these things, than our possessions which is something we often forget. Uh, perhaps you've been at Target before, or maybe your own kids have done this to you, where they see something on the shelf, and they need it to the point of tears and tantrums. They have to have this toy or stuffed animal or Alfred or whatever, and their life cannot go on without it. And we typically shake our heads and try to logically explain to them that they actually don't need it. But the reality is we are all guilty of this. We just hide it a little better. We fixate on the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the neighborhood we live in, and we measure the worthwhile nature of our life by these things. But once again, death sets the record straight. Uh, I have not seen many people on their deathbeds, but I am told that rarely, if ever, do they say, I wish I had made more money. I, I wish that I would have driven a nicer car. No, they, they wish for more time with their loved ones. They wish that they had devoted more time to things that are truly important. See, our possessions, they aren't what makes life worth living. 
So if it's not our possessions, what is it? What does a life worth living consist of? Jesus answers that for us uh, in the point of his parable in verse 21. Rather than laying up treasures for ourselves, the life worth living comes when we are rich toward God. That's a little vague, so Jesus further defines it for his disciples in verse 33. He tells them they need to sell their possessions. They need to give to the needy. To be rich toward God means that we leverage what we have to further him and his agenda. And it's worth noting that to be rich toward God is not giving from the excess. See, to sell your possessions meant that you were dipping into your savings It was going to hurt to be rich toward God. But it was only when we seek his kingdom that that all these things, including a life worth living, would be added to us. And you're probably sitting there, and you're internally nodding your heads, and maybe you're even giving thanks that we're talking about this this morning because the person in front of you really needs to hear it. Or maybe, maybe your child going off to college really needs this word from the Lord. But the reality is we all need to hear it because the obstacle to a life worth living, to being rich toward God, is present in all of our lives. Jesus tells us what this obstacle is in verse 15 when he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, covetousness is a kind of old-timey word that we don't use a lot, so let's plug in something we're more familiar with. Jesus is talking about greed. Greed is when our money, our possessions, become too important to us. They, they become the preoccupation of our life. And that's actually something that Jesus spends a lot of time talking about. He, he warns against greed far more than he does adultery and sexual immorality. And part of why I think he did this is because none of us actually think we're greedy. It's been my experience that if we confess our sins to each other, they're typically sins of pride, of lust, of anger. But I have never heard, and frankly, I have never said to anyone that the struggle with greed is real. Because I, we, don't actually think we're greedy. And that's what makes greed so dangerous. Because we're blinded to its presence. That's why Jesus exclaims, take care Watch out. Be on guard. Because greed will be in your life if you aren't vigilantly looking for it. So what are we looking for? How do we spot greed in our lives? Well, our text gives us two indicators that greed is lurking. The first we find in verse 19. After coming up with a build bigger barns idea, the man says to himself, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy yourself. And what he's doing is gloating over his wealth and possessions, which is one indicator that greed has taken root in your life. Gloating is when we are preoccupied with wealth and we have wealth. Uh, Perhaps, like us, uh, you've been around people who, without fail, work finances into the conversation, right? It it might come in the form of announcing a raise they just received at work, or that they finally paid off this loan, or or showing you pictures of the extravagant two-week vacation they just went on. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. 
but typically what's happening is they are delighting in their money. They are, they are boasting in their wealth. That's an indicator that greed's lurking. And it's not too difficult to spot overt displays of greed, especially in an affluent area like where we find ourselves. But realize that you don't have to have money for greed to be lurking in your life. See, the second indicator of the presence of greed in our text is worry. Now, worry in this passage is not generalized anxiety. It's, it's specifically connected to our possessions or lack thereof. Uh, worry shows up whenever we are preoccupied with wealth and we feel like we don't have it, which is a feeling that isn't restricted to the poverty line. Uh, in her book, The Overspent American, Juliette Shore surveyed people by household income, and she asked them to agree or disagree with this statement. I can't afford to buy everything I really need. And she found that 40% of individuals who make seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year felt like they couldn't afford to buy the essentials. And that's fascinating because the average income of Avon falls in this bracket, which means that 40% of the people around us feel like they can't afford to buy everything they need. Take that a step further. If her research is right, that means 40% of us feel that way too. Now, is that, is that true? Possibly. I'm not negating the presence of financial difficulty. My family's experienced it. But, but when I look at my life, when, when I force myself to examine the times that I was worried about money, I have to confess it was fueled by greed, not true need. And, and here's all I'm trying to say. Jesus is right. Greed is a pervasive issue in our lives. And please hear what I just said. Greed is the issue. Money is not the problem. The bumper crop in the parable was not the problem. The inheritance that started all of this was not the problem. Food and clothing are not the problem. What our hearts do with wealth, that's the problem. See, greed isn't simply a preoccupation with wealth. In Colossians 3.5, Paul is admonishing his hearers to put to death earthly things, and then he lifts off some examples, one of which is greed. And then he makes a very interesting statement about greed. He says that greed is idolatry. Now, idolatry is when we take something good and we place our deepest hopes, our, our, our greatest desires upon it. And so for greed to be idolatry, it means that our hearts have taken the good thing of wealth and have elevated it to a God thing. We've asked it to provide things that are essential to our being. Like what? Well, look at the ravens. Notice what Jesus says about them. They are carefree. They don't save or plan, etc. And yet they are completely secure, which is something we all long for. And greed says to our heart that our wealth can provide that sense of security that we all need. That our money is a way to insulate ourselves from difficulty, that, that it's a means to control an uncontrollable world. And because of that, we hoard our wealth, spending as little of it as possible so that we can feel safe. But don't just look at the ravens. 
look at the lilies. Jesus says that they are more beautiful than Solomon in all of his splendor, and, and we want that too. We want to be significant and catch the eyes of everyone. And greed says to our hearts that our wealth can provide that for us. That if we just spend our wealth on the nicest clothes, to buy a house in the best neighborhood, to have extravagant vacations, that, that we will feel beautiful and important and approved of. And what is so diabolical about greed is that because greed offers to satisfy multiple needs, it actually hides in plain sight. Here's how. If you're looking to money to be your security, you will see others spending their wealth, and you will think to yourself, that person's self-indulgent. They're excessive and out of control. They are greedy. But if you're looking to money to be your beauty and significance, you'll see those who are hoarding their wealth and rightly call them misers. I'm going to say they're greedy. But don't you see, regardless of which type of greed we have, we're all struggling with the same obstacle to a life worth living. We are all greedy. I am greedy. And when greed is our idol, we cannot be rich toward God. We can't be generous toward others because we need our wealth to provide for us. And, and so we hoard it like Scrooge McDuck, or we spend it wildly in search of the next thrill. Uh, we are too busy leveraging our wealth to try and have a wonderful life that we fail to see that our life is anything but wonderful. Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings trilogy depicts our sad state uh, through the character named Smeagol. Uh, Smeagol was just your average ordinary guy until he stumbled upon uh, the ring of power, the one ring to rule them all. And this wasn't just a shiny gold ring to him. No, it, it was uh, his heart's desire. And the effect this ring had on his heart was it, it, it transformed him into this ghastly creature known as Gollum. It, it robbed him of any semblance of life. And you might think to yourself, oh, poor Smeagol. If, if we could only get the ring away from him, everything would be okay. He'd, he'd realize that the ring was doing this to him, and then he would go back to normal. Well, one day he did lose the ring. He would say it was stolen, semantics. The point is that it was out of his possession for decades. And yet he didn't change back into Smeagol once the ring was gone. No, instead, he was driven to search for it all of his days because it wasn't just a ring to him. It was his precious. See, oftentimes money is not just money to us. That's why giving it away won't solve the problem. Because money is our heart's precious. It's the thing that gives us security and significance. And so we, we can't get rid of it. We need it too much. The only way that our hearts could possibly let it go is if we were to find and adopt a, an even greater precious, something that could give us security and significance. See, there, there's an exchange that needs to take place for us to be cured of our money sickness, of our greed, which is actually what Jesus is offering in our text. We can summarize what he's saying uh, in verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All through this passage, Jesus is inviting us to exchange the God of money for the one true God. Uh, he 
made the case negatively, showing how ineffective money is in providing for us. But because he knows that an exchange needs to take place, he draws our attention to God's provision of creation. Look at the ravens. They have the security you want, and you are far more valuable than a bunch of unclean birds. Look at the lilies. They have the beauty and the significance that you seek, and yet you are far more valuable than they are. God will provide for you. In fact, it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't spell out what's included in this kingdom, and that's because that's not really the point. The contents of the kingdom is not in view here. Rather, the king of that kingdom. The kingdom of God is where God reigns, and he provides life of abundance for his citizens, a life worth living. Rather than money, God invites us to see him as the provider of our security and significance. And that has been his intentions all along. Genesis 2, 15 and 16 shows us God's original provision for Adam and Eve, that the Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. From day one, God was providing them a life of security and significance. He did have one stipulation, though. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God instructs them to not eat from this one tree to trust that he would provide for them, to, to rely on his goodness and care of them. And then the serpent comes along in Genesis 3, and he proposes that they actually can't trust God, that God's been holding out on them, that he, he's actually keeping the greatest treasures of the garden for himself, and that they should just take a piece of the fruit, that, that they should just add this tree to all the other trees they can eat from. Then they would be like God, then, and only then, would they have a life worth living. And so they ate from the tree. And, and, and the rebellion cut all of us off from the source of security and significance. But rather than, than see the, the banishment from the garden as what it was, an act of mercy and care, it, it solidified humanity's conviction about God, that, that he's not going to provide for us. That he, he's always going to withhold the good stuff from us. And our hearts have been clinging to created things to provide for us ever since. And that's why Jesus came. To convince our hearts that, that we are clinging to the wrong things. Here's how the Apostle Paul says Jesus showed us this in 2 Corinthians 8-9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, who had infinite wealth, set that all aside, became poor. Not only financially poor, but also spiritually destitute, shouldering our rebellion and the accompanying divine wrath. Why? So that you and I might become rich, so that you and I might have the same security and significance that he does. And his actions show us just how undeserving our worldly riches are of our heart's affections. 
See, our worldly treasures say to us, you need to die to purchase me. Whereas Jesus said, I died to purchase you. Our idols of wealth say to us that you need to give your time, family, talents, everything to obtain me, and, and maybe, just maybe, I have what you want. But Jesus said, I have given all I have, including my life, so that you might share in my riches. See, Jesus' life and sacrificial death not only restore our relationship with God, but it enables us to be rich toward him as well, to be generous toward others, because we grasp that he's a far better precious for our hearts to cling to. And when we grasp that, when, when we realize our richness in Christ, it cures us of our money sickness. When our hearts cling to Jesus, when he's the source of our security and significance, money becomes just money. It allows us to be rich toward God, to be generous toward others, because we don't need to make sure that we're cared for. God's got that covered. Which leads us to ask, what are we supposed to do with our money? You know, Stanford University did a study back in the 70s uh, with kids and marshmallows. What they did is they, uh, they would have a kid come into a room with a marshmallow in it, and they would say to the child, I'm going to leave the room, and you can either eat the marshmallow, or when I come back in 15 minutes, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two. And that's typically how we talk about money as Christians, that we should give our money away, we should be generous with our marshmallow, because one day in heaven we'll get like 30 or 100 fold. It's, it's delayed gratification. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that we ought to be generous with our money, because in Christ we already have all the marshmallows. That we are God's treasured possession, greatly loved, lavishly cared for, and eternally secure. And because he has given us all things, we are free to let money be money. We are able to be rich toward God with our possessions because our heart grasps how richly God has been toward us. And so, brothers and sisters, do you want a life worth living? Then we must be rich toward God. We must be generous with our wealth. And the only way that's possible is if we turn our eyes to Jesus, if we look full in his wonderful gaze. Then and only then will the things of this earth, all these possessions, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your gracious and abundant provision of us, for us. We thank you that you have cared for all of your creation, from the ravens and the lilies. But most importantly, we thank you that you have provided for us. We acknowledge that every good and perfect thing comes down from you. And yet we must also confess, I must also confess, that, uh, that we are greedy. That we are preoccupied with our our wealth, asking it to provide security and significance. Father, forgive us for chasing after cheap substitutes such as this. And Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to grasp your great love and provision for us. How rich we are 
in your son. Not only would we grasp that, Father, but it would motivate us to be rich towards you that we might be generous to others to show the nations what it is like to serve and to know a great and generous God. Now, Father, even as we sing our final song, would you continue to impress this upon our heart, your great love, care, provision of us, so we may go out boldly for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.